we are here to talk about this little thing called life. Um, now, life is a pretty big concept, right? Everything that we are and everything that we do is life. So what do I mean when I say we're here to talk about life? Well, we're here particularly to talk about the way that you and I are processing through life. The way that we are dealing with life as young men, as young women, as, as believers, or maybe as those who are searching out what truth and faith uh, are. Now, I'm going to guess that most of you have lived enough life at this point to recognize that you have certain expectations or certain desires in life that are not being met. Here's what I mean by that. You and I really want to know what rest looks like. Not just physical rest, right? Emotional rest, relational rest. But what do we often find? Exhaustion. We're just, we're just tired people. Uh, you and I want to know contentment and satisfaction. But life, if we're being honest, right, is often incredibly frustrating for us. Maybe in relationship with teammates. Maybe in your relationship with mom and dad. Maybe in your inability to perform in the classroom as well as you would like to. You're frustrated. We, we would like to be people who have incredible confidence in life. right? We want to walk into every situation with our head held high and our shoulders square and ready to boldly go. But the reality is that life is often consumed with fear. We fear people, we fear circumstances, we even fear ourselves. And on and on we can go, right? Instead of certainty, we often find anxiety. Instead of freedom, we find bondage in so many ways. Instead of successes, we have failures. Some of you are in that junior and senior year. Some of you maybe have just graduated. And this entire last nine months was just all about... The, the anxiety and the frustration and the feeling of failure because you didn't get the grades you wanted, you didn't get the standardized test scores you wanted, you didn't get accepted to the college that you wanted, and so life for you right now is incredibly complicated. Instead of, uh, instead of comfort, we often find discouragement. Instead of peace, we experience guilt. Instead of joy, we know sorrow. Can I, can I just share some of my sorrow with you? I've been a youth pastor in Clemson Presbyterian Church for the past seven years. It's been a wonderful seven years that God has richly blessed us in ministry. In the past five years, we've buried four youth parents to cancer. Let me just tell you, this is not directly related to what we're talking about necessarily, but as a pastor, as somebody who is well-educated and trained and approved by the Presbytery, I can't make that right. Many times I don't even have the words to say. Why? Because life is too big and too heavy and the sorrow is real. Instead of obedience, we find sin. Sin in our own lives, sin in the lives of other people. It's confusing, it's complicated. And so what we're beginning to realize, right, is kind of the, the title of the class. We've got a big mess on our hands. A mess that's multifaceted and a mess that we don't kind of really know what to do with. Um, what I love 
is that oftentimes in life, you'll, you'll kind of get a, a glimpse into our mess, even from a, a kind of a secular perspective. Here's what I mean by that. Anybody seen the movie A Star is Born? Anybody seen that? came out recently. Okay, we got some. Anybody heard the song Shallow? Shallow? Probably more of you. Um, here's what I love about the song Shallow. It is not the typical pop song. It's not about a romantic relationship. It's not necessarily about money or... What is it about? Well, let's look at just the beginning of the song. Here's what Bradley Cooper sings. Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world, or do you need something more? Is there something else you're searching for? I'm falling. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change, and in the bad times, I fear myself. What's that an acknowledgement of? Life is messy. A few ground rules for you as we get started this week, and we'll revisit these uh, day by day, so if you, if you miss some of them, that's okay. But I think it's just important that we kind of set a foundation for ourselves. First, let's recognize that our mess is real and eternally significant. When, when I use the word mess, I am talking about sin and disobedience, that's true. But I'm also talking about just all the consequences of Adam and Eve's fall from perfect relationship with God. The consequences that you and I face regardless of our choices, right? We, we feel physical limitation. We, we feel sickness. Uh, we feel broken relationship. Not necessarily because we have sinned, but because we live in a sin-tainted world. <clears throat> now, that mess is real. You don't have to ignore it. You don't have to try to imagine it away. It's not a figment of your imagination. It is real, and it's eternally significant. That means that our mess matters. It matters to us, and it matters to God. That's one of the first ground rules we need to make sure we understand. Second, our mess is both internal and external. Here's what I mean by that. It's inside of us, and it is outside of us. Some of us might be tempted to think... That if we could isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves from the world and from other people and from all of the circumstances that cause us anxiety and fear and sorrow, that if we could just kind of live life in a bubble, we'll be okay. But we won't. Why? Because the mess of sin and fallenness and frustration, it lives inside of us. It is a part of our hearts, a part of our heads, a part of our thoughts, emotions, and spirits. It's in there. And it is also out there. We live in a culture, in an environment of messiness. Now I think if we have to recognize that our mess is real, that it's something individual and corporate, inside and outside, that leads us very quickly to conclude that our mess is too big to be adequately addressed by us. Now when I look at this room, you know what I see? I see a lot of potential, I already told you that. I also see a lot of very handsome and very beautiful people. I see people that are no doubt incredibly intelligent, musically and athletically gifted. But you and I cannot deal with the mess of life. We cannot adequately address all of the things 
that are going wrong. All of the burdens that we daily carry. We can't do that for an individual, and we sure can't do that for everyone's life. Right? Now, if you're like me, the ground rules are kind of discouraging. It's like we're on a downhill slide, right? But but here's where we begin to see a glimmer of hope and and where we're going to spend the majority of our time this week. Know that our mess is something that God moves toward in and through Christ and the gospel. Let me say that again. Our mess is something that God moves toward in and through Christ and the gospel. I think it's very important to to realize and, and to grasp by faith because you and I don't naturally do this. Anybody seen the commercials on television with the, uh, <laughs> with the dogs and cats that have been abused and mistreated? Anybody seen these commercials? And there's usually like a Sarah McLaughlin song in the back. In the arms of the angel. And you're like, you're horrified by this because the dog's like scared and shaking. And it's like looking for you like, please give money. You know what I do when I see those commercials? Change channel. Why? I don't need to enter into that mess. I, I like puppies and I like kitty cats. But I've got enough stuff going on in my life to not have to worry about that too. So click, I change the channel. So often in life, we're just like what you heard last night with Russ. We're the people that walk to the other side. We avoid the messy situation. That is not what God does in and through Jesus Christ. He sees the mess, he understands the mess, he knows the mess, and he moves toward it. God knows who we are. He knows what we are like. And he knows how big our mess, our stuff, our sin, our frustration, our sorrow, he knows how big it is. We're not surprising God. God knows what we actually need. This is important. Because sometimes we think we know what we need. Sometimes we think we know the solution. But the beauty of of the gospel and a biblical truth is that God actually knows what you and I need. Even better than we do. And God adequately addresses our mess through the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So those are our ground rules. Understanding our mess is real. It's inside of us. It's outside of us. It's very, very, it's too big to be handled by us. But God is at work. Now, to talk about this, and we're getting there, guys. You're doing great. Any questions so far? Any thoughts? All right, let's keep rolling. To talk about how God addresses our mess, we're actually going to be in the book of Ezekiel uh, this week. That may be a surprise to you because as, as you've maybe read through or experienced Ezekiel, it's a big book. It's a prophetic book. It's full of lots of very strange imagery. And so you might think, how in the world are we going to begin to see God working in my life through the book of Ezekiel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let, let's talk about the fact first that Ezekiel is a prophet. So he is serving as God's representative to the people. That means that what Ezekiel sees and what Ezekiel says is authoritative for us. It can be trusted. It is good news. 
We also know, and this is important to realize, that Ezekiel is speaking to a group of really messy people. Ezekiel is speaking to a group of people who are in exile. A group of people who have been disobedient before God for generations, and as a result, they have lost their inheritance of the land, and now, sitting in Babylon, they have no home, no temple, no king, no freedom, and literally no hope. Now that's, that's good news for us. Because God is speaking to people here in Ezekiel like us. Now we've never had a temple. And as Americans we've never had a king. But we know what it looks like to, to not have a home. Some of you know what it looks like to not have a home in your home. Because it's a place of contention. And a place of, of alienation. We know what it's like to to not have freedom because we're in bondage to patterns of behavior, to to sins, to to maybe even other people. We know what it's like to have no hope. Some of you are sitting here this morning at RYM, and already by, by 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, you're thinking, I do not see a future for myself. Ezekiel is speaking to people just like us. We're going to see over the next few days that Ezekiel, especially in chapter kind of 30 onward, he uses really detailed word pictures to describe God's work in our midst. The four we're going to be looking at, today we're going to look at a whole new world. Specifically, what God does to cleanse a people who are extremely dirty. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about God's search and rescue plan. How God takes a people who are desperately lost, He finds them, and He brings them home. When, or Thursday, rather, we're going to talk about the breath of life. How God takes a dead people... And really, truly, forever brings them to life in every sense of the word. And then Friday, we're going to talk about one nation under God. No, not the United States of America. But God's greater people, God's greater kingdom, God's greater nation that he is drawing together from every tribe and tongue for his glory and our good. Okay? So that's our ground rules. That's kind of our our beginning look at at who Ezekiel is and what Ezekiel is. Any more questions before we actually dive into the book of Ezekiel together? Okay, great. Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 then. Ezekiel 36. We're going to talk about a whole new world. We're going to start in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36. We're going to read a couple of different passages here. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. Remember, this is God's word for me and for you. The word that God uses to bring us to faith by the power of the Spirit. Let's read together. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. 
But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. That's a hard word. God says some very real stuff about his people Israel, and I believe clearly about us as well as his people. So where do we kind of start? Well, let's set the stage a little bit. Some of you know this year that Disney did a very bad thing in trying to improve upon change and bring Aladdin into live action. Let me just tell you, they messed with part of my childhood. I will never forget it. I remember going to see Aladdin with my grandmother when I think I was six years old. It was kind of tradition. We would go see the Disney movies together. And I remember you're introduced to this Aladdin character, right? What do we know about Aladdin before anything else happens in the movie? What is he like? He's a street rat. That's a great way to describe somebody. Maybe you should try that tomorrow. Like, hey, street rat. Okay, he's a street rat. What else do we know about him? Where did he get the bread? He's a thief. Generous thief, but a thief. <laughs> All right, so he's a street rat, he's a thief. What else? If he's a street rat, that means he's poor. He's poor. It also means he's dirty, right? He's gullible. He's vulnerable. He's orphaned. Aladdin's situation is actually very, very sad. You ever thought about the fact that it was Aladdin's circumstances that actually made him so quickly persuaded by that old man in the desert? Okay. Aladdin's situation is not good. He is a dirty, thieving street urchin who has no reason to dream or to hope. He has no expectation of blessing. In fact, Aladdin fully deserves the punishment that's been promised to him by the guards. At some level, yes, Aladdin longs for something better. The man's best friend is a monkey. He longs for something better. But in and of himself, he will never, ever, ever become anything other than what he is. A dirty, thieving Street rat. 
But you and I know something drastic changes when Aladdin meets someone very important. Keep that story in mind as we unpack Ezekiel today. First, we're going to see our mess here, and we're going to look at our mess every single day. But, but at a high level in Ezekiel 36, what is our mess? It's that we're really dirty. I mean, how many times did you hear me just read the name profane, 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 uncleanness, uncleanness? We are really, really dirty. How does God describe this dirtiness? Well, it says, he says that his people are dishonorable. That they have taken his name and his character and misrepresented it before a watching world. It's scary to admit, but you and I do this on a regular basis, don't we? We may quickly identify as a Christian, and yet our behaviors, our words, our lifestyles give people a very different understanding of God's character and work. He says just very clearly that we are spiritually filthy people. We have defiled ourselves, the Israelites, we, we, we have defiled ourselves with all manner of sin. Last night in small group, I asked my guys to just think about the last seven days of your life. Not the last month, not the last year, just the last seven days. I mean, just think about all of the ways that we have disobeyed and dishonored God in the last seven days. Here in Ezekiel, we're learning about a people that have been dishonoring and disobedient to God for hundreds of years. They're also incredibly hard-hearted people. What does it mean to be hard-hearted? Anybody? Not willing to listen. All right, it means that you won't listen. I don't know who said that, but that's exactly right. To be hard-hearted is to be confronted with the fact that we are dishonorable people that misrepresent God. To be confronted with the fact that we are actually disobedient people, but to say, uh, whatever. It's like it just won't get in, and we won't let it in. We're disobedient, according to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're distanced from God and from other people. We're going to come back to this theme a lot this week. But recognize that our mess is primarily the result of being distanced from God and other people. Why would I say that? Well, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when the fall happened, what was the first consequence? Anybody remember? Distance. Distance from God, right? What do they do? Whoa, we're naked. That's awkward. We're going to make some really, you know, quick clothing. And then when God comes walking, what do they do? We're going to go hide behind these bushes. You see that? Distance. When God says, um, help me understand why you ate that food, Adam. What does Adam do? Her fault. What does Eve do? Serpent's fault. Distance. Between God and man. Between man and man. Between man and creation. And here, in Ezekiel 36, God says that part of our mess is that we are distanced from him and from other people. He also says that we're hungry, and we'll revisit that theme. But, but think just a moment about the prodigal son, right? He was physically hungry when he had distanced himself, when his mess had distanced him from his father, but he was also spiritually hungry. So it's not just that, that we're physically hungry and he provided for, we need something more than that. 
We also learn here that we're incredibly forgetful. Did you hear as I read that, that God says, I'm going to make you remember who you really are? I mean, let me just kind of revisit that with you. Um, he says in verse 31, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. That's kind of scary that God says, I'm going to make you remember your true character. But let me just say as a little advertisement for, for future things, that's actually beautiful because the gospel begins with a proper understanding of who we are before God. Okay? So what do we need here according to Ezekiel 36? What did the people of Israel in exile need? What do we need as those who are in exile to sin and to the fall and to the powers of, of death and hell? We need complete and total renewal. This isn't a makeover kind of thing. This is an absolute total restoration kind of thing. Now, as we kind of think about this together, what time we got, guys? 9.45, great, 15 more minutes. As we think about this, I want you to think about a wedding. And you may not be able to see this clearly because it's kind of bright and sort of small. As you think about a wedding, here's the typical scene, right? Months of preparation, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars being spent, tuxes, flowers, musicians, food. But what's at the center of all of it? Right. Let me just tell you, when I became an ordained minister, I was really excited to preach and teach. I was really nervous about serving the Lord's Supper and performing baptisms. But I was clueless when it came to weddings. I just didn't even think about that part of being a pastor. I really didn't. That is my favorite thing about being a pastor. Why? Because the groom is here. Guess where I get to stand? Right here. I literally have the best seat in the house. I get to watch every emotion, every detail. I get to know when people can't quite get the ring on their finger. Right? But that bride is the center of attention. And traditionally, what does a bride wear? White. As a symbol of purity and preservation. This picture, this, this bride's dress is filthy. It's like she's been hiking in it. And I can show it to you later if you want to come up and look at it, but it's green-brown all around the bottom. Let me tell you, there's no amount of Tide or Clorox that's going to fix that problem. If this bride is going to be represented in pure white and impurity, she's not going to need a bottle of Clorox. She's going to need a brand-new dress. That's who we are, according to Ezekiel 36. That's how big our mess is, according to God's word. You and I just don't need a little help. We need a brand new suit of clothes. We need absolute renewal and restoration. We need something new from the ground up. And here's the good news. God's solution is that he cleanses us and makes us righteous. First, we see very early on in what I read that God will vindicate his honor and his holiness. In everything that we've done to complicate the world, to misrepresent God, God says, listen, I'm about to work. 
and I will make sure through you that the nations understand that I am actually holy and righteous. We see that God cleanses us. And this is a big deal. Starting in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and, shall, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From your idols, I will cleanse you. Verse 29. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. God is clearly interested in this passage in purifying his people. In purifying all of the uncleanness, all of the mess that is a part of who we are and what we are. We also see here that God gives us a new and living heart. We talk about being hard-hearted, right? This means that God makes us receptive and obedient to His Word as it's delivered. And that's good news. God enables our obedience by His Spirit. Okay, don't, don't miss that. Verse 27, it says, I will put my Spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So who is it that's actually enabling, strengthening our obedience? It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's not just that we're kind of drumming up within ourselves some kind of new way of living. It's that God actually says, listen, I understand how desperate your condition actually is, so I'm going to give you a new heart, I'm going to purify you completely, and I'm going to put within you my own spirit, such that you will obey. Because obedience is the way of blessing. God draws us together and draws us close. Again, we're going to talk a lot about this this week. Because I think it's one of the primary benefits of God's saving work. That we are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. God feeds us in excess. We'll see this especially tomorrow, that God is interested in providing for us in abundance. God reminds us of who we are. We talked about this a little earlier, but this is a good thing. Why? Because it drives us to confession and repentance of sin. Does anybody remember what Jesus said when he emerged victorious from, from the wilderness? The kingdom of God is at hand. What was the next phrase? Anybody know? Leaders, you can jump in here too. Repent. And believe the gospel. God is saying, listen, my people who are unclean, who are messy, who are complicated, who are frustrated, who are sorrowful, I will help you remember who you really are. You will repent and you will believe the gospel. And that is beautiful. That is good. That is healthy. God brings us absolute newness. I told you that I love old cars. I'm going to show you a picture of an old car in two different stages. The best I can tell, this is a 1969 Mach 1 Mustang. It's a very expensive car by today. This is how it started. It was a mess. It's falling apart. Everything about this thing is wrong, missing, or broken. This is what it looks like after a year's worth of a restoration process. In essence, here in Ezekiel 36, God is saying, I understand who you are. I see what you are like. I know that your condition is too desperate for you to actually address on your own. Trust me. I'm moving toward it. 
in and through Jesus and the Spirit. I know what to do, and I will accomplish my work for my own glory and the good of my people. Let's take note of a few things, and we'll do this quickly. First, notice that God does all the work. I just want to encourage you to go back and read this, but I'll quickly say this. What does God do? Verse 23, I will. Not we will, not you will, I will. Verse 24, I will. Verse 25, I will. Verse 26, I will. Verse 27, I will. Verse 28, I will. Verse 29, I will. Verse 30, I will. Guess who's doing all the work? God is. It is God that does the work of salvation. It is God that does the work of cleansing. And that for us is good news because it means He is to be trusted. He is to be leaned into. Now it's interesting, we learned here earlier on that God is ultimately working for His own glory and honor. It's not our work that motivates Him toward action or guarantees His blessing. But never forget that as God secures His glory, He is also securing the eternal good of His people. You can't separate those two things out. God's glory and the eternal good of His people always go together in Scripture. And so when God says, listen, I'm going to vindicate my honor. I'm not working ultimately for your benefit, but for my glory. Know that He is working for our benefit. But the chief end of man ultimately is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I don't have nearly as much time to spend on this as I would like this morning, but know that Ezekiel 36 has ultimately been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Why do I say that? Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. He says, what? How do I inherit eternal life? A question that's repeated often in the New Testament. What must I do you know, to, to, to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says not, hey Nicodemus, you're a pretty good guy already. Just do these few things to kind of get over the hump. Jesus doesn't say you know what, you're really not that bad compared to other people, so just kind of keep doing what you're doing and you'll be fine. Jesus looks at this man who is religious, who is outwardly obedient, who has his stuff together, and Jesus says to that guy, you must be born again. Jesus is saying the same thing that God is saying in Ezekiel 36. You have to have a foundational change. But the good news that we're reminded of in 2 Corinthians 5 is that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He's the brand new thing that God promises here. This is pretty cool. Remember that spirit that God promised that would enable our obedience? Guess what happens in Acts chapter 2? God's people receive the Holy Spirit. Again, we're seeing promises fulfilled in real time in the New Testament. Promises that we now share in as members of God's church. I'll make this quick. Are we at 10 o'clock yet? Woo, five minutes. That's good. I love to read. I told you that. I expect, My wife and I kind of have a fascination with like children's and young adult literature. She's, uh, she, we both read through the Mysterious Benedict Society. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read that. Um, Harry Potter, that continually is read in my home. Um, she right now is working on The Secret Keepers. Um, but The Chronicles of Narnia, I mean, let's just keep it real, right? Chronicles of Narnia. Everybody has their favorite book in The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, mine is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, I literally was teaching through Philippians one time in Sunday school. 
And I was talking about how Paul says in early Philippians, I don't know if it's better for me to go or for me to stay. And I used Repachee as an example. When he says, we've come this far, I'm going. And I just start weeping in the middle of Sunday school. And my students are always like... <laughs> but for me, I mean, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is just a great book. Anyway, you know that The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we're introduced to a, a young man named Eustace Scrum. To kind of just summarize it for you, he's a jerk. <coughs> he's not nice. He's selfish. He's unkind. He doesn't kind of get what everybody else is into in Narnia. And because of this, he ends up being turned into a dragon. This is a, a print that Rachel and I actually have hanging in our living room, done by Methane Studios. It's not necessarily used to scrub, but that's what made us, made us think of particularly because he's got a boy and a girl. Anyway, uh, Okay, so he is a dragon. And he desperately, through the course of time, he begins to understand his mess, understand his condition, understand that this band around his arm is cutting deep into his flesh. Read the book, you'll understand. He wants to be changed, ultimately. He sees how poor his condition actually is. And so what does he do? He begins to tear at his own flesh. And it sort of kind of works. The scales come off. But what happens? They immediately grow back. And so it's just this vicious, desperate, pitiful scene as he's trying to make things better, but he can't. But the hero of every Chronicles of Narnia story, Aslan, comes to him and what happens? Aslan peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there I was, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been, and then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. He threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. That is a beautiful picture of what God promises in Ezekiel 36. That in and through Jesus Christ, in and through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, in and through the proclamation and application of His truth and His power, and in the vindication of His holiness... God is taking people just like us who have a beastly condition and complicated circumstances and selfish motivations and hard hearts and He is making us into boys and girls again for His own glory. So where does that leave us this morning? It leaves us with one big point to take away. God can clean anyone no matter how they're Some of you in this room may legitimately think that you are too far gone for God's assistance. That you've done things that, that you never wanted to do. That you have continued on in a habitual pattern of behavior such that God could never work to bring restoration. Some of you are perhaps thinking of someone in your life that's too dirty a family member, uh, somebody that used to call a friend. Here's what I want you to understand. 
that according to Ezekiel 36, no one, no one is too dirty for God to cleanse. Because when God makes promises, He fulfills them. All right, any questions? You guys did a great job listening. Thank you so much. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together this morning. We pray that as we continue to learn, that we would not just be informed, but that we would be eternally transformed by your Word and Spirit. God, meet us in this place today, in and through Jesus Christ our Savior. We pray these things in His name. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you tomorrow. We're on the beach.